Good morning. If you are visiting today, welcome. And also know that I am not the regular preacher, so you will hear better preaching next week and the weeks to follow. So don't let that scare you off. Uh, But it is my pleasure to bring you the words today. And as we continue on in Peter, we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. So if you have the Bible, please open there. And I will start by reading God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, you are holy and righteous and good. You are truly awesome. And Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your children, and we pray that we would be obedient children, and that, Father, we would set our hope in the grace of your Son, and that we would desire to be holy because you are holy, and it is what you want from us, and you are good. We love you. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I like to do when I preach, I don't know if you've ever caught this, I only preach once or twice a year, but, but when I do, I always like to give you little tips for interpretation. And one of the reasons why I like to do that is because I want you to be able to go home, and I want you to be able to read the Bible, and I want you to be able to, to see the same things that, that I'm seeing or that, that we're seeing as we read the text, and you can live it out. It's, it's not a difficult task, but I always like to give a couple of those. So I just want to make a couple of points here at the beginning. When we come to a text, particularly a New Testament letter, and the letters are the books of Romans through Jude in the New Testament, when we come to those books, we need to ask some basic questions. This is not an exhaustive list, but I want to give you a couple of things that you should be thinking about, some basic observations that you should be making when you're reading the letters of the New Testament. The first one is, who is the audience and who is the author? You always want to try to figure that out as best as you possibly can. All right, well, who is this, and who is, who, who's writing this, and who is the person who's writing speaking to? You also want to ask, what is the audience going through, and why is the author addressing them the way that he is? Also, this is a big one, what is the difference between the audience and us? Right, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence, Right? It's not as if I can say, oh, they're going through the exact same things, though the human condition is is pretty parallel regardless of time or culture. We also want to look at what comes before and what comes after the text that we're in. There's always a flow of thought within the narrative or within within the epistle, within the letter, within the argument that we're supposed to follow. These verses aren't to be read in isolation to the rest of the book. And so, with those things in mind, this letter, as Josh has said over the last several weeks, is from the Apostle Peter. We know Peter as the Apostle who always puts his foot in his mouth. Actually, he always says something really good, and then he puts his foot in his mouth. If you look at the the speeches that Peter has in Acts, they are very similar to the content that we see in 1 Peter, especially these early chapters. So it's that Apostle Peter who was who is the follower of Jesus, one of the original disciples. And he's writing to instruct Christians in 
Asia Minor, what we would call today Asia Minor, who are going through trials. Peter is trying to give them joy and confidence in their end times salvation, despite what their present circumstances might show them. Right? So we've seen him talk about joy. We've seen him talk about the salvation that's going to be revealed in the day of Jesus. That same idea is going to come up in our text today. These ideas are important because we can see at least a little bit of a glimpse of what the audience is going through. Now, when you're doing that, you don't want to think that you can make a super exhaustive list and know everything, but we can know some things. In the text the last couple of weeks, we have seen Peter address his audience as aliens, sojourners, exiles, right? This world is not their home. The the sermon series title, Exiles, right? This week, we're going to hear him talk about the hope that they have. So, thus the series title's name, Hopeful Exiles. Peter's point is that a Christian's home is not ultimately this world. We are here only for a short amount of time. He has grounded the hope and the joy that is the Christians and the fact of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do in the revelation of his son in the last days. Today's text is going to take those ideas that Peter's been working with, and he's going to move to some imperatives about how the community of believers is to live, how Christians are to live. So the big idea for our text today, and you know that my big ideas are always really long, so I want to try to get all of those thoughts in there. So the big idea for our text today is set your hope on the grace of Jesus by preparing your mind and being obedient to the holy life that God calls his children to because he is holy. Right? That's the idea of the text, right? So set your hope on the, it could have been longer. Set your hope on the grace of Jesus. That's a big idea. By preparing your mind and being obedient to the holy life that God calls his children to because he is is holy. So our text today naturally breaks into two main sections. The first one is verse 13. The second one is going to be verses 14 through 16. And we're going to follow Peter's commands. He's going to give a couple of commands to his audience, and we're going to follow those. So the first point that I want to make, and Malachi shortened the the big idea on this next slide so that you can wrap your mind around that a little bit. But the first point I'm going to make is set your hope on Jesus's return his revelation, by preparing your mind and being sober-minded or thinking soberly. So verse 13 says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter starts off this text with that therefore, signaling to the reader that they need to think about all of the things that have come prior So what does he mean when he says, therefore? Well, I think he's talking particularly about this salvation that he's been talking about in 1 through 11. This salvation, right? Remember that Peter has encouraged them that their salvation is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, that it's literally guarded by God. It's pretty secure, right? Their salvation is secure, Verses 3 and 4 say that. Because their salvation is is secure, therefore, 
Set your hope on Jesus' return. This salvation will be revealed at the last time in verse 5. Therefore, set your hope on Jesus' return. This salvation is what we rejoice in during times of trials and what God is using to refine his people. Verses 6 through 9. Therefore, set your hope on the grace that is to be yours on his return. This salvation is what the prophets proclaimed and the angels longed to look at. Verses 10 and 11 there, we just saw last week. Therefore, set your hope on the grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes again. So therefore has a lot of meaning to it here. He is imploring, because of all of these things, of, of who God is and what God has done and what, God, what I've said to you already, therefore, set your hope. The therefore is then followed by a description of what Peter wants Christians to understand. And in our text, it, it starts by saying, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. But really, the, the command in this text is the set. It says, set your hope Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the imperative. That's the command in this text. That command is going to be lived out by doing a couple of different things that Peter kind of front loads here, or our Bible's front load. We're going to be able to set our hope on this grace, and I think that as Peter's talking about this grace, I think he means this salvation that's going to be revealed He used it that way, and he talked about that way in the verses above, up in verse 10, right above. So he's got this this grace that he wants us to set our hopes on, and we're going to be able to do that. We're going to be able to set our hopes on this grace by doing two things, preparing your mind. This gives a picture of girding up your mind, so it's like taking, you know, saggy or or, or baggy clothes and, and taking them up so that you can run, girding up your mind. And then the second is to think soberly. Peter's going to use this language of being sober-minded or thinking soberly in other texts later on, particularly 4, 7, and 5, 8. And he's saying, realize what's going on. Look at things the way that they are. I think that Peter's going to reflect on this more in our text next week, which Justin is going to be preaching. And he's going to say, this is what sober thinking looks like. This is how sober thinking works bears itself out by doing two things we will be able to set our hope we'll be able to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the day of revelation right and and peter has already mentioned this revelation prior in this passage so verse 13 as we're setting our hope on this grace that is to be revealed that's the command In spite of your present circumstances, in spite of trials or difficulties, in spite of what you may deem to be be life pressing you down or crushing you, Christians set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed at Christ's coming. Earlier I said that when we read New Testament letters in particular, it's important that we know the difference between the situation of the audience and of us. This audience was persecuted for their beliefs in Christ. They were suffering trials for their faith. 
verses 2, 11, and 12, which, are piv- which is a pivotal text in this book, is going to bear that out a little bit more. Peter is encouraging people who are being persecuted to set their hope, their faith, right now in the surety of what Christ has done in justifying them and the surety of their salvation on the last day. We just sung about this. Our sins, they are many, but your grace is so much more. But at times, I think that when we look at the audience of the author and we look at our present circumstances, it's going to be hard for us to understand the the imperative or the command force that Peter is giving us here. I fear that we may live in too much comfort. We may have too many delicacies. We may have become anesthetized to the things of God and have chosen the things of the world instead. Do you find that you desperately look forward to Christ's coming? Do you long for the salvation that will finally be revealed? Have you ever looked forward to an event? Like maybe you were going to uh, a sporting event, right? Maybe not a Diamondbacks baseball game right now, but maybe earlier in the season, right? You had tickets to a Diamondbacks game and you were like, it's going to be great, right? We're going to go see this game, right? We're going we're gonna to watch Goldschmidt, right? We're going to see Corbin on the mound. You're you're looking forward to, you're anticipating this event. Maybe for you it's a concert, right? Maybe Maybe it's a vacation, right? When you've got that vacation that's on the calendar, Right, and you were a kid, and you had a link chain. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, like where you where you've got those links that you pull apart, and you're it's only 65 more days until right we get to go to fill in the blank, right wherever it is that you would go. Did you look forward? Did you set your hope on such things? Right, maybe if you are a student, summer break or just a day off, I don't know. But summer break, like as soon as summer, or if you're a teacher, as soon as summer comes. Everything is going to be great. I will finally have that rest that Jesus promised me, right? We know what it looks like to set our hope, is my point. We, we actually do this. We set our hope on future things. What have we set our future hope in? Has it been an event? Is it a spouse? If only I have this wife. Everything will fall into peace, into place. All the pieces will come together. If only I had a husband. If only we had kids. If only I had, right, this, if only I finally reached my career, this job that I've been working for. If only I had a little bit more money in the bank. If only these people had been elected. If only we could get these people elected. Or maybe it is just if only I had that one shiny new theological book. That's only me. I don't know what you guys say. If it's something, fill in the blank for you. It's something different, right? If only I had this one thing, then life would be complete. Have you set your hope on those things? Do you look forward to them 
at the exclusion of all other things, as your ultimate hope in the things that this world has to offer, things which moth and rust destroy and in which thieves come in and steal? Or have you set your hope on ultimate things, the things of God, which are imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. (laughs) That is awesome to think about. Peter wants us to set our hope in the grace, the salvation that will be guaranteed when Christ comes. We are saved and we are justified now, but final salvation will be revealed when Christ comes. We live in this awkward, already ours, but not yet fully kind of a world, don't we? And we can set our hope in those things above, as Paul says, by girding up our minds and thinking soberly. What are you doing to prepare your mind? What are you doing to set your hope? If that question seems odd to you, you're probably not doing much of anything to prepare your mind. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, says this. Hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. This does not happen automatically. It requires effort, concentration, and intentionality. And let's just be honest, we are not a culture, Western American culture is what I mean by that, We are not a culture who is known for deep thinking, for laboriously thinking, to setting our minds to things. We're often more concerned with entertainment. Christian, are you exerting mental effort? Are you intentional in the way that you're approaching your faith and your hope? Are you rehearsing the gospel to yourself Daily. Do you know that when you wake up in the morning, before you go to work, before you take care of kids, before you talk with your spouse, before you have your cup of coffee even, right, that you are completely dependent upon God? Do you rehearse that to yourself? Do you prepare your mind? Do you gird up your mind in such ways? Are you thoughtful? Are you intentional? Do you have a plan? Have you girded your mind? A couple of just practical things, I think, to to begin doing this, if you aren't already, is remind yourself every day of the hope and grace that is going to be revealed. This is when you're having a good day and when you're going through a trial. Remind yourself of the hope that is yours in the grace that is to be revealed in the day of Jesus Christ. That should automatically start your day off a little bit better. Surround yourself, second, surround yourself with those who will give you these same kinds of truths. Friendships are often born out of complaining and grumbling, aren't they? It's very easy to form friendships around complaining and grumbling. I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. Instead of doing that, Form your relationships around the things of God that are eternal and lasting, around the gospel of his son and the hope that we have in his return. 
start practicing that with others and encourage them to do the same. Spend time with God's saints, with his people. Third, make a plan. Be intentional, be intentional about setting your hope. Many of you are doing that 90-day challenge right now. As you're doing that 90-day challenge, as you're talking to the, to the person that you're, you're meeting with, talk about this. Say, this is how I am going to prepare my mind, to gird up my mind, to set it on the hope that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes. Talk very intentionally about that. Ask for help if you don't know what you're, or how to do that. But do that. Next, we're exhorted to think soberly. So prepare your mind, think soberly, or be sober-minded. But let's be honest, how many of us, when a difficulty comes, we don't think very soberly, do we? We think in much more of a drunken fashion, which is kind of the opposite of soberness here. When you're going through trials or difficulty, do you think soberly? Or do you lose focus on ultimate things when things get difficult? Do you start thinking about the small little things of life? Often, things in our lives that are, if we were just going to put them on a scale, are a one or a two, can really make us, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, escalate them to like a ten. Like, this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. You mean like you got delayed for like 15 minutes on something? And that's like the worst thing? that's ever happened to you. But when trials come, we, we, we stop thinking rationally. We stop thinking soberly, right? And we think, and we blow things out of proportion. It's particularly helpful when we do this to have wise and trusted counselors who aren't gonna be like, that's like the worst thing ever, when it's not. And they can say, I think you might be overreacting. My wife has to do this constantly with me. And we want to prepare our minds soberly so that the next time you're going through trials, you'll be ready. If you prepare your minds now or when it's sunny outside, when things are going well, when trials hit, right, things will, will go well. So if you've ever played a sport or an instrument or practiced something a lot, you know that you have practice Right? That, that you make a plan, that you do these things so that when you're in the heat of the match or the game, right? I play tennis, so it's match. When you're in the heat of the match, you'll be ready. You'll know what to do. So you do that in practice. Right? If you're trying to formulate a game plan in the middle of the game, it's usually a little bit too late. Think soberly now so that when difficulties come, you will think soberly later. But if you don't do it now, the chances are that all clear thinking will be fleeting. Christians are to set their hope on the grace that is to be revealed at Christ's coming. We have that grace surely. It's been Peter's point up to this point in the text. But notice that Peter's talking to believers here. If you are not believing, there is no real true, lasting hope outside of Christ. In order to know the grace that will be revealed, you need to place your faith and your hope in him for the forgiveness of your sins. 
There's no other ultimate hope out there. So that first imperative or command was to set our hope, right? This next one is going to be to be holy. God calls us to be holy because God is holy and he has called you to be his holy child. Be holy because God is holy. That's the ground of it, right? Why are we to be holy? Well, God is holy. And he has called you to be his holy child. So verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed, no longer be conformed, right? Not not conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. The first thing that this says is a beautiful, wonderful thought that that Toby expressed very well in his prayer. Christians are children of God. We are God's children. We are part of his household. It's a beautiful theology of adoption that he has brought us in to his home, into his house. So Christians are these children of God and children... Right? If anybody's ever had a child, right? Or you are currently a child, right? You know that good children are obedient, right? Right? A life of obedience manifests itself, as Peter is talking to his audience of sojourners and exiles, it manifests itself in holy living, in holiness. The imperative, the command in this text is to be holy. So set your hope and be holy. Holiness in Peter's thinking is living for God and not like who you were when you were lost. It's a difference. When you come to know God, you are no longer characterized by the passions of your former ignorance. So notice the contrast there, right? Being sober-minded and former ignorance, right? You can see a clear, a clear contrast between those things. So a holy life is a life that is not like what you were, but like what you are in Christ. Christ has made you holy. It's a great theological understanding, a great theological doctrine. You have been sanctified. Josh talked about this a few weeks ago when he was talking about that positional sanctification. When Christ died on the cross... He not only took our sins and removed them, he also appeased God's wrath on our behalf, propitiation, and he gave us his righteousness. It's called imputation, if you want the fancy theological word for it. So that when the Father sees us, he sees not a blank slate, right? He doesn't even see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness, He's called us to be holy and he's equipped us to be holy because that is what the Son has given us, holiness. God's children are not to be like what they once were. In other words, Christians know better now since we've been saved, since we think soberly now. And Christians are to be holy. All of this, again, is grounded in that 
Because God is holy. God's very character and nature are what ground the command for us to be holy. This quote, be holy for I am holy, is found multiple times in the book of Leviticus. Right? So yeah, I think he's quoting kind of the overall warp and woof of this command that's mentioned multiple times. And notice how he's kind of double, he's sandwiched that idea. You know, God's holy, be holy, God's holy. Right? So he's really given us a force. It's very straightforward that we are holy because God is holy. So as we think about living this idea of holiness out, and we think about living this text out, God's children are expected to be obedient, right? As obedient children, it's kind of an expectation in the same way that any parent expects their children to be obedient. Holiness is the expectation that God has for his people. I think a a very good book on this subject is Kevin DeYoung's The Whole in Our Holiness, One of the first things that he talks about in that book is that there is no expectation of holiness in our culture. And even in evangelical Christianity, it's not a thing that's talked about much anymore. Very approachable book. Very good book that I would recommend to you as supplemental reading to Scripture. Read the Bible more, right? But that book is a helpful thing that will help you to recalibrate where your hope is set. So it's God's expectation for us. God saves his people and then has expectations of of us. This is a biblical theological paradigm that we see all over the place. God does not say, live holy and then we'll talk. If he did that, we would be lost. We would have no hope in this world. We would have no hope of the future because we cannot be holy in and of ourselves. But he saves his people And then he says, live like my people. He did this in the Exodus event, right? God rescued and redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he said, this is my good law. This is what it looks like to be a holy people who are dedicated to me, my treasured possession, which is a text that we'll see in just a few weeks. This idea of God redeeming us from what we once were, from bondage and slavery into this newness of life, is clearly in this text. God saves his people, and then he has expectations of us. Up to this point in the the chapter, Peter has talked about what God has done. It's all grounded in that. Because God has given his people a sure salvation. His people are expected to live like his people. It's important that we understand that order properly. We know that we're not saved by our works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is very clear about that. But we are saved to do good works. And those who are saved will do good works and walk in them because we are his workmanship created to do them, right? What a beautiful thought. Your children aren't your children because they're obedient, right? That's, that's not how it works, right? Hopefully your children are your children because they're your children and you expect them to be Obedient. The New Testament talks about this contrast, about no longer being conformed to your former way of life in a, in a variety of ways. You can see it in expressions like, you know, don't put new wine into old wineskins, or put off the old self 
and put on the new self. Or when Paul in the fruit of the spirit is talking, he'll, he'll talk about actually the works of the flesh for a paragraph. And then he's just got a couple of verses about the, the fruit of the spirit. There's a contrast of who you were and who you are now in Christ. I think that this contrast is brought out very well in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I think he brings up a lot of the same ideas that Peter is using. So I want to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And he says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, so how you're supposed to live in order to you know, live a life that's pleasing to God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. I want to encourage you, keep it up, do it more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your holiness, right? Your sanctification, that you would live a holy life. This is his will. So if anybody ever asks you, what's the will of God? Just say, well, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that, it's, that I would be sanctified. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, who you formerly were, right? It doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Read Ephesians 2, right? That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Notice the contrast there. Not impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See see what Paul did there, right? God's the one who commands this, and he gave you his spirit for you to be able to do this. And you see Paul talking about how you are not your own. You're bought at a price that you are redeemed and you're sealed by this Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. What a beautiful and wonderful thought. He has called us to holiness, not impurity, not to the former passions that we have. He's going to bring this up again in 2, 11, and 12, and we'll see that when we get there. We were just in Acts 5.32 in Sunday school, and it said that God gives his spirit to those who obey, right? Those who are his children. In Peter's thinking, Christians don't live like the world because their citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So how do we live a holy life? I think that really the best place for application in this is is Peter's actually going to exposit how to live a holy life over the next several weeks in the series in the sermons that we're going to that we're going to hear. He's going to talk about today that we live a holy life because it's grounded in God's character and you're no longer who you were. Next week we're going to see that if we think soberly, living holy looks like conducting ourselves with fear throughout our exile here on earth. And the following week we're going to see that Looking holy, a living holy life means obeying the truth with sincere brotherly love and with a pure heart. It also, in 2.1, looks like putting away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. It looks like growing up in your salvation in 2.2. It looks like knowing what Christ has done for you and who you are. 
in 2, 3 through 10, that you are his people, his treasured possession, who he has brought out of bondage and slavery and called to be his. It looks like abstaining from the passions of the flesh and keeping your, condu- your conduct honorable among the nations, among the Gentiles in 2, 11 through 12. He's going to exposit this over the next few weeks. So when you're reading all of these, these commands that are going to be given, think, this is what it looks like to be holy. And don't just hear them, but do them. Live in them. Try to walk them out. I want to end with just a few simple suggestions that will set our minds on the hope, the grace that is to be revealed so that we can, in doing that, focus on holiness now so that we can set our hope on the future. First, make a plan to prepare your mind to set your hope on the grace of Christ. Talk about this with someone. Talk about this with the person you're doing the 90-day challenge with, as I already mentioned, or your spouse. But make a plan. Prepare your mind. Second, think soberly about who you are in Christ versus who you were. In particular, what I want you to do is I want you to actually think about your testimony. And I want you to think about how you would word your testimony. I often hear people word their testimonies, and their testimonies are about them and them and them. Be mindful of how many times you mention I, me, my. Your testimony is ultimately about God and what he has done in redeeming you through the blood of his son and giving you his spirit. It's definitely, you're in there, right? It's your testimony, but I want you to rehearse your testimony to yourself. And I also want you to think about this. Have you ever heard somebody give a testimony and as they're giving a testimony, they're talking about the things that they've done in their past, all the sin that they've committed, their former passions, and they're talking about it with pride, and they're like, yeah, that was me, right? That's who I was, right? Uh, Don't do that. That's not who you are. There's no joy in that anymore. The joy that we have is in Christ. Think about the way that you think about your own conversion, I think that's going to help you set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the hope that is to be revealed in this grace that is, the, that is going to be revealed at Christ's coming. Third, do not put your ultimate th- hope in the things of this world. So easy to do that. Instead, long for the day when Christ will return and be revealed. If you've ever found yourself saying something like this, and most of us have probably said it, oh, I just want to do this before Christ returns. I just want to get married. I just want to... If we think, even if we think in such a way, even if we've never verbalized it, we have such a small view of God's kingdom and such a big view of ours. His kingdom is so much bigger. It's so much better. Our hope is in it, not in our kingdom. So long for the day when Christ will, fo- will return. And don't be fooled into thinking that anything is even closely comparable to that revelation of Jesus Christ. Fourth, this is going to seem like a weird one to many of you. Read the book Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is about a man by the name of Christian who is on a path to the celestial city. 
And he's going to encounter all of these travelers along the road with him. Some of them are going to try to lead him astray. Some of them themselves are going to go off of the path. But Christian has his, his face set on the celestial city. It's an allegory for the Christian life. It is a beautiful book. Read it. You can find modern English, right? It was written in English originally, but you can find modern English, uh, you know, uh, versions of it. But read that book or listen to it on audiobook. Either one. There's one by Max McLean. He's got a British accent. It sounds great. Fifth, Christian, know that your hope is grounded in who God is and what Christ has done. We are called to be holy because we have been made holy. We are called to live different than the world because this world is not our home. Let's pray.